1: This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And my co-host is Mary Alice Long. Our guest for this inaugural episode of Creativity in Play is one of the leading thinkers on the role of creativity in education and society, Sir Ken Robinson. His TED presentations have been viewed by millions and millions of people who care about making education a more meaningful experience, and the role that creativity can play in engaging people in purposeful learning, work, and life. Sir Ken also will be part of the opening session of the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 16th. Sir Ken Robinson, welcome. There's nothing to view, but that he's about to get on a call right now and talk about creativity. or 10. Hello? Hello? Sir Ken. And Mary Alice. Mary Alice. Excellent. Welcome. And sorry for the technical difficulties. So I'll I'll start again and thank you for everyone who's joining us. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dolberg.
0: And I'm Mary Alice Long.
1: Our guest for this episode of Creativity in Play is one of the leading thinkers on the role of creativity in education and society, Sir Ken Robinson. His TED presentations have been viewed by millions and millions of people who care about making education a more meaningful experience and the role that creativity can play in engaging people in purposeful learning, work, and life. Sir Ken also will be part of the opening session of the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 16th. Sir Ken Robinson, welcome to Creativity in Play. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Well, we wanted to start with a topic that a lot of people have certainly read about and talked about, which is the idea that there's a creativity crisis in this country, that the creative ability, creative thinking abilities of people have been dropping off in recent years, and what's your take on that is, and what you perceive in general to be the state of creativity in America right now?
2: Well, I don't think that people are being born with less ability. I don't think we've got some genetic crisis on our hands here. You know, Children are born with tremendous imaginations and uh, abilities to think differently and to hypothesize and to, uh, to do all the things that are required for a, for a creative life. The problem, I think, is that the systems that we have in place for education, the ways in which we are running our institutions and our businesses, very often stifle those impulses. I think it's especially happening in education. It's been happening for a long time. You know, there's a, a remorseless culture of standardized testing, of narrowing the curriculum, of leeching the creative vitality out of the whole process on the part of teachers as well as students. And it's bound to have a long-term payoff, and I think we're seeing it now. You know, We're having people coming through the, the system uh, who are frightened of making mistakes, who are frightened of thinking differently. And I hear that being said all the time. I, I work not only with education. I work a lot with businesses, and I hear it said commonly by businesses that they feel that they depend on creativity and innovation, but that often the people coming through the education system seem to lack the qualities, the attitudes, and the skills that are needed. So I think there is a crisis. Uh, I, I think it's something that can be dealt with, but it's it's a cultural issue, and that's how we ought to frame it. When well, you look
1: there's... at okay, – yeah. uh, I'm just going to pick up on your um... – comment on the work that you do with the corporate world and and wondering if you see particular examples of what corporations are doing beyond hiring a highly creative individual, which of course happens as well. But are there examples that you see of concrete active things that they're doing to try to tap into more of this capacity in their individuals?
2: Yes, I mean, companies have all sorts of different approaches. And by the way, I don't need to say that the whole issue here is an economic one. There are all kinds of reasons why developing our natural creative abilities is essential. There are personal reasons, they're cultural reasons, they're to do with community vitality, but they are also economic. And you know, The fact is that we're living in a time of uh, intense change, uh, which is not likely to, to itself to change anytime soon. I don't think we're moving from one period of stability through a period of change to another period of stability. I think this is going to settle in for the long run. I think it's going to be tumult all the way, honestly, in terms of economic growth and development and sustainability. So, yes, companies are doing all kinds of interesting things, and um, they range from, in many cases, uh, setting up their own internal universities. Uh, I often talk about Pixar as an example of that, uh, you know, which has an extensive in-house program of courses and lectures and workshops where people can develop their own interests and skills. Uh, alongside the work they do, and some of it feeds into the company's culture and, uh, or the culture, you know, the, the kind of core business objectives, and some isn't directly relevant to it. it. It has a cultural impact, but it's not required that people take courses related to their job. I know lots of companies who are doing that kind of thing. Um, others, uh, like Google, for example, you know, have a, a really strong policy of allowing people time away from their regular job to work on new ideas. I mean, creativity does take time and it takes encouragement and it takes opportunity there are all sorts of different strategies i know one company a, a, a smaller design company of about 30 people and they have had a practice for a number of years of giving everybody on the staff uh, a set amount of money it's not a lot of money uh, in terms of the company's turnover it's i think two or three thousand dollars a year per person which is significant for the individual anyway and they can spend that on anything they want uh, that that will contribute in some way to their own personal development. So some people, you know, head for Greece, you know, and other people decide they're going to take a course or a program. Other people decide they're going to go skydiving. The, The only requirement is, obviously it's scheduled so it works for the whole company, but the only requirement is that when they come back, they spend a couple of hours with the whole company telling them what they did and what they got from it. And it's one of the ways of keeping... The vitality of organisations alive, of stimulating the, the the imagination of the whole group, the whole organisation. And it, for me, that's where it begins. Creativity doesn't come out of nowhere; it comes from a cultivated imagination.
0: Well, Sir Kim, what do you think uh, can be done in the in both the educational system and in companies and universities, where in our current economic or economic climate, where there's so many cuts in the schools and so all the programs and at university level and, and also within different companies they're they're slashing programs and certainly continuing education programs in a lot of companies are being cut. So what would you recommend um can be done within the current slashing
2: climate that we have? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like nightmare on Elm Street, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And it
2: is it is actually a bit like that, I feel in some companies and organizations. I think it's important to say that this isn't a uniform picture. I don't think that there's a blight on all schools and all organizations and that everybody except the three of us is going off in the wrong direction. I don't think that's what's going on. As I go around, I see a huge amount of of innovation, of, of effort to... To cultivate creativity. I see great schools you know, with wonderful teachers and principals working hard with their communities and doing exemplary work. Uh, I see companies. There are some wonderful ones out there who are working both for themselves or alongside others to create collaborations. There's a whole network of creative districts across the world that we may talk about later that I've been involved in for some time. Whole states are trying to gear up to this. I'm part of an effort to Establish a na- national network in the United States uh, of creative districts. I mean, I, tra- I travel a lot. I work a lot with companies. I-, I work with school districts. I work with all kinds of cultural organizations, and not just in America but internationally. And th- to me, there's an interesting set of cross currents here. The the main drive of public policy uh, is, you know, at the rhetorical level to promote the idea of innovation, but at the practical level, as you say, there are swinging cuts. Uh, There are, particularly in education, uh, really counterproductive tendencies towards standardization, um, which really create a a difficult contradiction between policy and practice. But at the ground level, people are doing all kinds of things. There is, a, I believe, a concerted movement. I mean, Steve mentioned my TED Talk at the beginning of the program. Uh, I mean, that's been seen you know one estimate is is that it's been seen by about 100 million people it's been downloaded between five and six million times and it's often shown at events and conferences i'm not saying that you know in my own favor my my kids recently showed me a video on youtube of two kittens that seem to be having a a conversation you know and that's been downloaded 35 million times you know I'm, i'm not getting carried away you know i mean if i was just a bit cuter i might have done better But but what I mean is there's an appetite out there, obviously, for the sort of conversation that we're having. And I think it's a a conversation that's gathering pace and momentum. And one of the great opportunities now is to link people together who feel the need for the changes that we're talking about. And, you know, the programs like this, social media, provide another way of doing it. And, you know, actual working practical networks is another way to do it. I think there's a lot to play for here.
1: Sir, Ken, you were part of an initiative in... Uh, the United Kingdom, that, that assessed the state of creativity in arts and education, correct, about 10 years ago?
2: That's, that's almost correct, yeah. Uh, can, I, can I tell you what the difference is? The, sure. Uh, well, it wasn't just focused on the arts, and it's really important to say this. Uh, what happened was that our then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, kept making speeches about the importance of education, and in particular the importance of creativity and innovation, and I thought this is absolutely right. The problem was that the policies that were being put into practice were almost identical with those of No Child Left Behind. And anybody listening to this in America knows how wonderfully conducive they've been to promoting creativity. Mm. Uh, so there was a, obviously a clear problem. It's the contradiction I'm talk, talking about between rhetoric and practice. And I and others approached the government at the time and said, you know, if you're serious about creativity, then let's be serious about it. Let's have a strategy for it. And I was commissioned, as you say, to put that strategy together. It was published in a report, which you can download to my website if anybody's interested. It's called All Our Futures, Creativity, Culture, and Education. But the key thing I just wanted to emphasize about it was that the whole argument for creativity includes, critically includes the arts, but it's not confined to the arts. This is an argument that applies equally to mathematics, to science, to technology. You can be creative at anything. And it's important that the whole school sees creativity as an imperative across the entire curriculum and all sorts of teachings. And also that this isn't an extra burden. It's actually a benefit when we engage children's imaginations and teachers' imaginations too. The whole school lives a different life at that point.
1: And what you were saying about what was happening in Britain at the time in terms of the talk versus the practice is, is kind of what I wanted to raise in this country. Do you see something similar where we often talk across education, business, government, nonprofits, the arts about the value and role of creativity in in and across society, but in terms of from a policy standpoint and particularly at a national level in this country in comparison of Britain and Singapore and Australia and other countries that you've probably worked with similar initiatives in, sort of a lack of that in this country at a national level. Again, lots of great examples going on in, in regional places, in some states and some cities, but is there a place and a role that should be happening at a, at a national level in this country, particularly from the government's role in that?
2: Well, I think, you know, I, I was at a meeting recently listening to Arnie Duncan speak, and um, you know, he's a, he's a very experienced. Uh, he did a, a you know a, a really substantive job in Chicago, um, and I think there's no question that at the policy level uh, he he gets what the issues are. I think nobody uh, at the national level that I hear is any longer underestimating the depth of the problem and the scale of the of the threat. You know, I mean the the ways in which we educate our Younger people and not only kids <coughs> and students are really involved in education I mean, it 's a, a lifelong process, and we shouldn 't forget that but but at the moment, the way that we uh, in- educate this generation coming up is fun- it could not be more important to the whole future of the country and you know we are living now uh, at a time when an average of thirty percent of children, young people, drop out of high school between the 9th and the 12th grade, and in some parts of the country, as we know, it's it's very much higher than that. That's a dreadful, uh, calamitous waste of talent and ability and motivation and energy, and the economic costs that that grow from that are immense. So I I don't hear politicians not understanding the scale of the problem, and those who don't get it really shouldn't be in office, but the solution is often mistaken, I, I think. There's... It's what I was arguing in the UK and in other countries too. You know, the role of the central government is to help to create a climate where innovation can happen at the ground level. You can't improve schools without giving control of the improvement and the incentives to improve to the teachers and the principals and the students who go there. You know, schooling is a very personal, community-based business. And the problem, I think, for a lot of education reform movements is that governments have tended in the past to try and control it all from the middle you know they go into this command and control mentality and feel that the only way to improve things is to tell everybody what to do and to narrow their options down and to standardize everything and to introduce penalties if they if they cross the line and that has been proved relentlessly and repeatedly not to work and it won't work because human beings are not machines they are individuals and they have motivations and lies and feelings and imaginations and the only way to improve education is by giving every school the incentive to improve itself. And some of the initiatives that are being taken now contribute to that, and some of them don't. But until all schools see the possibility of real improvement, we'll always be dragging along this sort of incubus of people who don't want to be in the system at all, and many of them will simply drop out of it, and that's a catastrophe.
0: And um, how can we, Sir Ken, how can we support... And nurture the teachers, the mentors, the coordinators, the different programs, uh, the CEOs to help children and adults, for that matter, play and create and find their natural abilities and match those with their, you know, their school program, what they want yeah. to learn about, whether they're children or adults. How can we do that?
2: Well, it's an interesting thought, you know, that when. Uh, students drop out of school, all the attempts to get them back into the system are based on personalized curricula. Almost all all of the effective remedial programs are based on sitting down with the individual student and working out a program that works for them. They suddenly become personalized. And the truth of this, I think, is that if education were more personalized to begin with, very many of these students wouldn't have pulled away from it because they pull away thinking, well, this just isn't for me. In the end, any individual student doesn't go to school in every school in America. They don't go to school in the committee rooms of the White House or the Senate buildings. They go to school in, in their particular community, in their particular neighborhood. And education for them is the teachers they work with and the school principal who's Responsible for the overall culture and, and for the other kids in their their community. That's it, their education, and that's where the improvement has to come. So I believe that you know one of the problems in the U.S. And I, you know I hope I'll be forgiven for, for saying this, not, and that I'm not speaking as an outsider. I do live here now. You know I'm a permanent resident. We've been here for ten years nearly, uh, and I'm sort of passionate about the challenges that that were being faced here in the states. But the you know, the real challenge is to is to empower each school to engage with its community and to improve itself. There isn't an alternative. though. if in education, particularly, we are we're dealing with a human process, and human processes always resist being standardised in the way that these, you know, that, that since No Child Left Behind, these policies have tried to make the system operate through, and. My experience is that there are wonderful schools all over the country, but all of them are based on customizing to local circumstances. They're based on a willingness among the teachers, the parents, and the school principal to rethink some of the fundamental ways in which they've been operating in the past. And they're all based on engaging children both individually and as a community. There are some things which are new in our situation just now to do with technology and changing rates of population. But there are some things that have just always been true of education for as long as there have been people on the planet, that people become engaged if they're interested, they become engaged if their imaginations are fired up, they become engaged if they're treated as individuals and if they have a strong sense of community. Those things have always been true, and they're still true now. And efforts like No Child Left Behind and the legislation that seems to be replacing it or or building on it miss that fundamental point, that this is a human process. And until we recognize that, For as long as we dehumanize people, they'll react the way humans do. They'll pull away from it.
1: And that question of engagement, I think, is such a big connection to the role that creativity can play in helping us tap into and discover what is engaging and meaningful and purposeful to us, which you very much have written about in your most recent book, The Element. And I'm wondering if you can pick up that theme a little bit and and talk about that connection, building on what you were just describing.
2: Well, yes, the, the Element was published um, 18 months ago now. In fact, I'm working on, uh, as we speak, uh, I'm working on the sequel. Um, and the, uh, but, but the basic premise of The Element is that most people, I mean, I don't know everybody, you'll understand, but in my experience, and I, and I don't hear it contradicted much, but very many people, let's say, have no real sense of their true talents, of what they're really capable of. And very many people go through their lives, a substantive part of it, either feeling they haven't got much talent of any sort at all, or that they may have some talent that they've never been able to pursue properly. They, they get through their lives. you know, they, they tolerate their lives rather than relish them. But I meet people at the same time who absolutely love what they do and feel that they're never happier than when they're engaged in this particular activity, that it defines them. And, you know, the the language we often use for that is say they're in their element. Well, being in your element is two things. I believe it's firstly doing something that you have a natural aptitude for. And we all have very different attitudes. And this is a key point for educational transformation that human talent. And you think it really, we really even shouldn't have to say this, but you, you do have to say it. Human talent is tremendously diverse. We all think in very different ways and we have very different strengths and weaknesses and are very very individualized profiles of natural abilities. And this is important as a principle, that diversity is important as a principle. I'm not talking now about gender or cultural diversity, though all those things are very, very important. I'm talking about the natural intellectual diversity that comes with being part of the human community. And the problem I think for schools, or for children in schools, students in schools, is that our current systems have been contrived to celebrate a particular type of ability. And because we have such a narrow view of ability in education, we end up with a very broad conception of disability or abnormality. And people who don't think in the way the the current system celebrates end up thinking that they're the problem, or they end up being medicated to get them to concentrate on it more. I mean, that's a whole other argument about the the natural need or otherwise for some of these medication programs. We might come to that. But the first thing about the element is that it's about natural ability. But the second thing is, that being in your element is more than finding something you're good at. Because lots of people do things they're good at, they don't really care for. To be in your element, you have to love it. If you love something you do, if you have a passion for something that you're good at, that's really when your life starts to go off in a different direction because it engages your energy differently. It enlivens your spirit in a different way. And and we talk about that all the time, about people being in high spirits or low spirits, you know, being energized or not. These are natural impulses in, in the nature of being a human person. And so the element is about that. It's about what is it that brings us to life and what is it that closes down and, and what conditions, therefore, follow from that for the way we raise people and, and how do we educate them and how do we live our own lives.
0: And I I, sure can. I'm interested in our last uh, couple minutes here on the show and how you, what led you to the work that you're doing right now, just in a well, it's interesting
2: well, it's interesting to me. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Uh, originally, this book, The Element, was going to be called Epiphany. In fact, that first TED Talk that you mentioned, Steve, I, I mentioned it in passing as uh, a book I was writing called Epiphany. Uh, yep. uh, I've actually changed the title of it since then, but that TED Talk, I think, has done wonders for other books called Epiphany. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, that's no longer the name of my book. But the reason I, well, we decided to change it was that Epiphany... The word epiphany, which I rather like, because it has that sense of revelation, it was a bit misleading in two ways. Firstly, it has some religious connotations, which might have been a bit confusing in the title of the book, uh, because you want the title to tell people what the book is really about and not give some misleading impression of what what else it might be about. And the the second is that epiphany carries with it the idea of a sudden revelation, a bit like the road to Damascus, you know, that there was a, a moment before and after. And in my experience, which is just to come to your question, uh, it, isn't, it isn't always necessarily like that at all. There isn't, for everybody, a moment where the lights suddenly come on and you think, this is it. Sometimes it's a more gradual unfolding where you, it's like sometimes when you meet people, sometimes you fall in love and meet you, and sometimes your love for them grows. And I think that can be the way with your own element. You can find something and it will gradually become apparent to you that this is what you should be doing. Because you're, you keep doing it, you keep being drawn to it, and you, you're the last person to recognize it's what you're so good at and what you love to do. And it was a bit like that way for me. I, I became very impassioned about education quite early on in my life. I found myself in a position to engage and communicate with people about these things, and I think that is when I'm at my best, when I'm trying to get these ideas across and to engage people in the, the natural passions and enthusiasm I have for this whole area of self-fulfillment and for, the, for community enrichment.
1: Well, Sir Ken, thank you very much for joining us for this inaugural show.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Sir Ken Robinson is a leading advocate for the role of creativity in society, and he'll be at the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 16th. You can listen to this show again and find information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. Listen at noon on Friday, October 8th, when Itamar Kubovi, the Executive Director of Palabalos, will be our guest. I'm Steve Dahlberg.
0: And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Sir Ken.
2: Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere.